0: Everybody, this is Phil Town.
1: This is Danielle Town.
0: And we're here with the Invested Podcast where we talk about stuff like Rule One Investing.
1: And we talk uh, about how to feel good about what you're doing with your money. <laughs> how to come up with, with what to do with your money in the first place.
0: Is it really possible to buy ten dollars worth of value for only five dollars the way Buffett says he does
1: it? Well, that's the the ten dollar question.
0: That is <laughs> <laughs> the ten dollar question. That's that's you know he obviously does it right. I mean you can't you can't fault that. Although there are still people who are strong efficient market theorists who argue that um, you're always going to have these three four sigma events right where where you're in a random you're in a random marketplace or in a random game uh, like flipping coins and or a roulette wheel or something like that, um, where there's known probabilities. And there's always going to be that coin flip that goes 100 heads in a row, which they would argue is, um, you know, way, the normal standard deviation is, you know, one sigma is like 67% probability, and then two sigmas is like 95, and then three sigmas is like 99% unlikely, and then four sigmas is 99.7% unlikely or whatever. And five sigma event is ninety nine point nine 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 unlikely. And then six, you see what I'm saying? There are these potentially possible once in a billion years sigma events. And yeah. one one guy recently said Warren Buffett is a six sigma event. <laughs> he's one guy like that in a billion, billion years in the universe. he's
1: so essentially a statistical, not uh, quite anomaly, but <laughs> statistical... Um... I don't know. Ab- uh,
0: I think "anomaly" is the right word. He's a statistical anomaly. Well,
1: it, well you're right. It's not, He's not, an not anomaly, quite though, because it's it's predicted by yeah, the statistics that predicted. someone like that will be able to do it.
0: It's predicted, but it
1: will be one. Yeah, and not
0: not 200. twenty, not twenty. And Buffett, as I think we remarked before, went to Columbia University in 1988 and made a list of something like 12 or 15 or 20 guys, all of whom were Flipping heads a hundred times in a row, you know, in terms of their stock market returns. And he said that, you know, maybe even that could be random in some random universe. You know, big enough set of possibilities going on out there. There's six, you know, you get twenty six Sigma events happening all at once. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't be random if they've all come from the same school. They're all doing it in the same zoo, in other words. Right, right. Then it's not random anymore. And so I think, you know, that became the beginning of the end of this paradigm, but it's continuing to persist because there's no other mathematics that anybody's developed that will tell you what your risk is for any given pile of investments other than the one developed by academics in modern portfolio theory. And um, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger had to go over to Salomon Brothers a few years ago and, and kind of put their credibility online uh, to keep the company open for a while while it liquidated its uh, its its assets. And they watched really smart guys who have really a ton of degrees from Wharton and Harvard continue to use a theory that says that risk and reward are intimately related. You can't get a higher risk without a higher re- reward. Sorry, you can't get a higher reward without a higher risk. And evaluate investments based on what Charlie was saying is a complete Fabrication, He said, we've never seen so many smart people do so many dumb things, but thank goodness they keep doing it so we can keep making all this money. <laughs> so we have such a vastly different point of view over here in Rule 1 Investing that says that you can, in fact, buy $10 bills for $5, which means you can, in fact, get a high rate of return for a low risk when the rest of the world, including virtually all financial advisors and the SEC, Think that that's uh, her- heresy. You you can't do it, and that Warren Buffett, as this guy is saying, is a six sigma event. So
1: on that thing you said about it would not be such an anomaly if they all came from the same school. Yeah, I'm reading this really interesting book right now on risk management, and I haven't gotten all the way through it. I keep saying I've started books and haven't gotten all the way through it. Whatever, that's how I do it. So it's really interesting they're talking about the difference between possibility and probability and this guy who, who wrote it and I, I have the book across the room but i of course don't remember the name of it um i think it's called something like risk intelligence um he writes about these doctors who do hernia surgery apparently hernia surgery in any given hospital
0: is this is this tool gawande by any chance
1: no it's not that's a different book okay Um,
0: this is about the, well, let me just finish that aside, because if you want to read about checklists and, and risk reward and all that in the, in an environment of surgery, read books by Atul Gawande. He's a brilliant surgeon. I really like the guy. I was
1: reading that book. I was reading Atul Gawande's book right before I started the risk management book. Maybe I'm mixing them up. Maybe Atul Gawande wrote about that.
0: Because when you start talking about surgeries, I'm thinking that sounds like Atul.
1: Okay, so somebody in a book that I read recently <laughs> wrote about <laughs> probabilities in hernia surgery, and it clearly made enough of an impact that I remember it, but not enough that I remember who wrote it. So what he said, the mysterious author unknown, is that in, a, in any given hospital, the risk of hernia surgery is something like chance of, like 15% of of surgeries come out with complications or maybe they have to have the same surgery again because there's some issue or there's some problem with the surgery. But there's a hospital in Canada where all they do is hernia surgery and their risk of problems developing from that surgery, they have it down to 1% to 2%, which according to hernia doctors is impossible. Uh which I find extraordinary Uh that there's an entire field of experts who think that this is not possible. And then somebody, well, multiple somebodies at this hospital in Canada have disproven it. And the way they've disproven it is by being absolute experts in hernia surgery. That is all they do in that hospital. They don't do any other kind of surgery and that's all they do over and over all day As though it's a factory of hernia surgeries. And so they have the same team around them every time, and they all understand each other's movements intimately, and it just makes it work as opposed to having, you know, like different nurses, different doctors coming in and out, different surgery centers. all kinds of different factors that that can cause problems to happen and i just thought that was fascinating that, well, that we've sort of automated ourselves in a way like we've automated the human experience in this in this hospital setting to the point where we've reduced that risk so dramatically
0: i think there's something uh, magnificent about this example you know, because one of the factors that makes it possible to buy a ten dollar bill for five dollars in spite of the fact that everybody says you can't do it is exactly what you're talking about with these doctors in Canada, is they've become extremely specialized in a very small circle of competence.
1: Exactly. And And so, of course, when I read that, sorry to interrupt you, of course, when I read that, I thought of your language of talking about canyons and investing and developing Each of us developing our own expertise in some particular, this is my understanding of a canyon anyway. We haven't really gotten into canyons, so we should should explain a little bit more. But my understanding of it is that it's each of us developing our own expertise in a given narrow field, um, or maybe a couple of given narrow fields, and therefore being able to determine which companies are Strong and growing, and have right people there, and which companies are not, and and which, which industries have systemic risks that you need to know about, and which ones don't, like that. Those kinds of questions.
0: Exactly, and and the the, the intimidating factor of doing any kind of investing, whether it's real estate that we'll talk about more today, or or farms uh, operations, or um, or picking specific stocks to buy, is um, that it just seems all so overwhelming. That there's so many things that it appears you might have to know.
1: Yeah, as I say constantly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> as you say constantly, and you know, one of the, you know, one of the things that we can learn from just life in general is that, um, you know, what looks to be overwhelming can be broken down into a series of steps. So, for example, um, if you wanted to travel all the way around the world, that would look pretty overwhelming but it all starts with just one step and that one step could be just, you know, a, a one small walk for an hour westward and then you stop in a motel and prepare <laughs> yourself for the next day. And, and if you break down these huge, it's very philosophical. If you break down these huge challenges um, of trying to understand the whole stock market or how to be a great investor uh, into much, much smaller increments, where all you're really trying to do is understand, let's take real estate, for example. All you really want to try to do is understand the real estate in your area, right? You're, you're not looking in the entire city of Denver. You're looking just in Boulder and you're narrowing it down to that community of real estate. And further, you're bringing it in even tighter to just the downtown area of yeah. Boulder real estate. And you, you could discover, I think, couldn't you, that, I mean, you've just kind of gone through this with your place. You could figure out what those things cost to build. You know, what's the replacement cost for a place like yours? How many are going to get built in the next few years? What's going to drive the market for downtown real estate? Maybe Google coming in with a bunch of jobs. All those things are much easier to get your head around than trying to figure out real estate in America or real estate in Denver right? Or even real estate in Boulder.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's easier also because um, living somewhere, I mean, it's easier for me to figure out real estate in downtown Boulder than it's easier for than it is for me to figure out real estate in downtown Denver, because I'm not present in downtown Denver very often, whereas I'm present in downtown Boulder every day. And I can You know, you gather information just by talking to people, being on the street, reading the newspaper, whatever, like stuff you would normally do, you gather information through. And so it doesn't feel like you're doing this sort of digging exercise, which is what I feel like with the stock market. I feel like I'm sort of digging and not knowing what I'm quite looking for. Um, Maybe it's a sense of perspective when you're learning about what's going on in your own town, you've got some perspective on it. You, you kind of know the history a little bit and you know who to talk to a little bit.
0: But if you've just moved there, you kind of don't.
1: You but don't. And that's that's why people often say you should live somewhere for a while before you buy anything. <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. Um, John Templeton used to say that, uh, who's one of Warren Buffett's favorite guys to point to as a great investor, used to say that uh, the key to his investing Success is this idea of scuttlebutt, um, is what he called it. Just kind of keeping your ear to the ground and knowing what was going on and who to talk to and who to ask questions of.
1: Old-fashioned term. I I imagine like like a haberdashery and 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 a snap brim brim hat and like tip their hat to each other and say like, "What's the deal, bro?" Okay.
0: We should bring that that back. I think I want a snap brim hat. I think that would be great. Before I. Before I get too old, I want a snap brim hat. It's
1: a snap brim hat.
0: That's that kind of hat with the like you'd see Humphrey Bogart wear in the movie. You know, it's uh, like snap the the brim turns down in front over your forehead. Is that a little different bit. than a fedora? Huh?
1: That's a fedora? Isn't it? Yeah, like a fedora. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, but you, you bend the brim in a certain kind of way, you know. In a
1: Bogarty way. In a
0: Bogarty way, I think just would be fun to bring hats back after a while.
1: I think you should do to, it oh Go gosh for it. it's I'm, never too late
0: i'm the last guy to set a trend i'm i'm very much a trend you know follower i, I just i don't feel comfortable unless it's already out there that's all <laughs> i can tell you
1: terrible
0: i know so w- here's this idea that that temple can used t- called scuttlebutt and essentially buffett is saying the same thing and that is that um, or let me, let me put it in Charlie Munger's words who said that Warren and I, Warren and I basically uh, that what makes us so successful is that we have a circle of competence and we know where the boundaries are of that circle and we stay away from that. So we
1: we stay are basically, away the
0: stay away from the boundaries. So we don't get into what could become a gray area, right? And we stay well within our circle of competence. And what, the way Charlie put it is Look, you know, we know what we know and and here's, you know, lots of people know what they know, but here's the thing that makes us different is we also know what we don't know. And that part eludes a lot of people. They think they know when they actually don't. And so what you're saying about being in downtown Boulder is that after being there for a while, living in downtown Boulder, you start to have friends. You start to have a sense of the community. You start to have some stuff. You have an idea of what you start to know. And, and an idea of what you don't know after a while. Initially when you just get there you don't know what you don't know you know because you don't know very much you so know. I think that's really analogous to, uh, to being involved in the stock market um, and it should be actually not even analogous it should be the same exact thing because there shouldn't be any really definable difference between investing in real estate and investing in a farm or investing in a stock. They should be all the same basic formula um, that we should use as an investment. So that's why I wanted to talk about real estate a little bit here. Um, But we, we sort of went into the idea of keeping your nose to the ground. And I just wanted to say that while in Boulder, you have to keep your nose around and talk to people and talk to your friends and sort of gather what Templeton called scuttlebutt. When it comes to the stock market, the internet is the world's most massive scuttlebutt factory on the planet. There is so much flying around out there with regard to stock market and specific stocks, rumors, people writing everything about everything. Um, It's actually not a problem of where you're going to get the scuttlebutt. It's how to filter it, how to to narrow it down.
1: Obviously, yeah.
0: Yeah. I
1: mean, I don't think anyone's concerned that they can't find information on the Internet.
0: Well, you know what, I do it think-
1: How reliable is that information? But
0: I think as you come into stock investing as a, new, a novice stock investor, you're worried initially that you don't know anything. And so you don't know, including where to get information, how to figure out how okay, to filter. Fair point,
1: yeah, sure. I mean, I would think most people would just Google whatever company they're looking at.
0: Well, you'd think so, but then what comes up is a bazillion things. Right. Right.
1: That's. Yeah, that's the
0: point. So part of what we're going to do here in this podcast as we go out over time is we'll, we'll discuss those things that become really important to know. And it turns out there's not that many critical things that you have to know. There's a few critical things and you need to know those. And you need to know that you know them when you know them. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. need to know that you don't know them or even more important that you can't know them. Because of the range of experience you've had with life, because of what you've learned so far, that it turns out many things in the stock market are companies that you really can't know. Enough. So you need to have
1: certainty in the parameters of your knowledge. Beautiful. And that. I is
0: love the way you said that.
1: All tasks.
0: Certainty in the parameters of your knowledge. I love that. I've I've been saying you need to be an inch wide and a mile deep, but I'm going to change it. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, um, this discussion we had about these surgeries up in Canada—I'm almost certain that comes from Atul Gawande. And the reason I am—Yeah,
1: am, now that you've—I'm very glad that you've read that book because I totally would have attributed. I, this is my problem: is I read too many books at the same time, and I get them all mixed up. And then I get excited about the ideas. <laughs> it's the a good problem they, to have. How they relate to each other, and then I can't remember which book they came from.
0: By the way, I will tell you that the one fundamental trait that I know. Every good investor has, whether they're amateur investors or professionals, is they read a lot. So that quality you have right there, of enjoying reading a lot of, from a lot of different sources, not necessarily just business stuff, but just reading a lot about ideas can give you ideas. And so that's good
1: any business stuff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, by the way, I got I got that book uh, uh, from he has written several. But that one about that Canadian thing I read, your sister sent me that.
1: Yeah, it's in um com- well complications is the one I was reading so it must be it must have been in that one.
0: Yeah, so good on her. Um, so let's dive into this a little bit more uh, in terms of real estate. We're and and what I want to do is bring up an example that was in uh, Fortune magazine, and if you wanna you wanna look it up, it was in February twenty fourth two thousand fourteen, Fortune magazine in a uh, article called Buffett's annual letter what you can learn from my real estate investments, which I okay. thought would be apropos to our discussion here. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll basically summarize it here. What, what he said was. Wait, that,
1: before you start. Okay. Can I just comment? Sure. Buffett invests in real estate? Yes. Mr. Stock market, Mr. Amazing stock market investor that we're modeling everything after invests in real estate, which is on our list of things people do that we don't want to do basically.
0: Ah, contrary. Real estate is a very, very good asset group. Buffett invests in real estate. Okay. He also has invested in silver and gold.
1: Okay, so we we are not actually making a list of things we don't want to do. We're just making a list of other options, and maybe you want to do them sometimes?
0: I believe we probably do want to do them. Um, Buffett invests in bonds. He does options trading. He's probably, he's either one of, or the largest... Options trader that I know of, um, he commonly does multi-million dollar options deals, and he's a very, very good private company investor. So he does private equity. He owns at least sixty private companies that he's bought over the years, and he does public companies. So let's think about this. He's got he's got farms, commodities, gold, silver, bonds, um, public stocks, and private companies.
1: That sounds kind of diversified
0: it sounds very diversified and it all every one of those investments with a few you know with a range are investments that he's found that he could buy a ten dollar bill for five dollars or you know or at least a ten dollar bill for eight dollars let's say
1: maybe that's how you diversify then like you you buy stuff across different asset classes but all stuff that you've specifically chosen that you're capable of understanding and that you've bought on sale.
0: Exactly, exactly what happens. And even more, I think what happens, Danielle, is that over um, a lifetime of investing, you'll see that the market cycles, um, that assets go through different market cycles. And the market cycles for, let's say, stock market might be the opposite of a market cycle for commodities. Mm-hmm. It's entirely possible that they're going, commodities are going down and the market's going up and the market goes well, down, isn't commodities that go why,
1: up. Isn't that sort of conventional wisdom for why you're supposed to diversify?
0: It, um, it is conventional wisdom for the diversification across asset groups. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not the reason you diversify in the stock market. You diversify in the stock market because of a lack of knowledge and in this incredibly boneheaded theory that all things are priced properly at their value. Um, therefore you cannot beat the market and the only way to invest in it since you don't know one value from another, is to buy a pile of it at once. Whereas okay. when you're looking at diversifying across asset groups, you're looking at um, going for more what we'd call like a rule one portfolio, or what Ray Dalios, the fabulous hedge fund investor at Bridgewater, uh, calls and invented the idea called an all-weather portfolio where you have asset groups that are going to perform differently in different economic environments. So if the economic environment like the the, the think of the economic environment as the weather we're in, um, in, a, in a beautiful sunny day there are certain activities which are really great to do, right? Maybe having a picnic. On a really big rainy day you might wanna be inside with a fire. So you may not wanna be inside with a fire on a beautiful 90 degree day in the summertime. So there's just different activities you wanna be doing, different asset groups.
1: We are learning so much, dad. (laughs) Like we're going from diversification in the stock market is, okay, I'm gonna use the term bad because that's simple. And diversification amongst asset groups is good. And that makes sense to me. And,
0: and it does make sense. Um, and really, frankly, if if you happen to have, you know, five or ten million dollars, probably we could or I know we could set up uh, a rule one portfolio designed to not ever really have any significant loss of, of capital and would perform at probably in the seven to nine percent range almost no matter what would happen. You could have a Weimar Republic inflation. You could have a depression. And 30 years later, you're going to come out and and it's going to distribute your capital properly. And uh, you've reduced your risk without reducing your return.
1: This is like totally hitting me in a sort of like uh, informational way. I feel like I've received information. Here's why. (laughs) You have been saying for months, don't diversify. And I've been just... Thinking like, what the hell? Why is everybody saying diversify and you're saying not diversify and you're explaining it? And okay, fine, it kind of makes sense, whatever. Blah blah blah, the Town method, et cetera, et cetera. But that said, different things happen to different kinds of of investments, and uh, and I, I feel very relieved that you're saying that um, that some diversification in different kinds of groups is a good thing. Okay, I'm being inarticulate. This is making sense to me. This is making me feel better about the entire Rule One
0: plan. Well, I th- I think if we take it one more step, we we're gonna we're gonna see something really interesting happen, which is that the um the diversification across these asset groups is organic. It's natural. It's uh, like a forest growing. In other words, if you well, pers- now you've
1: lost me again. <laughs> okay,
0: <laughs> I thought I might. If you're pursuing really good investments let me let me back up one step if you had 10 million dollars then we would build perhaps this you know ray dalio all weather slash rule one portfolio that doesn't lose money it also doesn't make great high returns it doesn't do any better than the stock market by itself what it does is it lowers your volatility so that you're going to do pretty well no matter what happens whereas if you're just in the stock market and you have a 1929 stock market crash and a depression Stocks are gonna do terribly and you're gonna be nearly wiped out. Whereas with this very um, risk-adjusted, diversified portfolio across risk-adjusted asset groups, then you're gonna sail through that depression or the Weimar Republic inflation in Germany in the 1920s. You will go through that without significant capital loss. And that's huge to be able to to know that you're gonna have a portfolio that's passive and you don't have to do anything. The problem is you need $10 million or you need $5 million in order to be able to live on that over a long period of time. The, what we're talking about is a wait, little- Wait,
1: wait, wait, hmm. You need that much money to choose that kind of portfolio because you want to live off of the returns from that portfolio. Is right. Is that what you're saying? Right. Right. But what so, if I just want to protect myself and not protect my investments and not live off of the investment. Returns. Then
0: absolutely you could if if you're earning enough money over your lifetime to not only keep up with inflation which will double your cost of living in real terms um, every 20 years or so if you're earning enough money and it's growing and keeping up with that and you can put away enough and it earns enough so that by the time you're ready to stop working or or you know at some point in time you want to have the option uh To quit working, this can put enough money in the can then this this uh rule one portfolio could could do the job for you really well, and you know you wouldn't have to do anything about learning how to invest other than pick an advisor that can build that portfolio for you that That could well be done, but i'm going to tell you that the amount of money you're going to have to earn and invest is very significant and very hard for most people to do. While they're trying to put kids through school, trying to live in a decent neighborhood, you know, trying to have a life, very tough to get enough money working. Uh, when you're making returns of seven or eight percent a year, very very tough. So this kind of a portfolio isn't designed to give you great returns. What it's designed is to give you okay returns without any huge losses along the way.
1: So I'm I'm sitting here puzzled because you said you I think just said that eight or nine percent returns are not good.
0: Uh, they're not enough for most And people. what
1: we said last time was that an eight percent return in real estate is really good. Ah. And we're really happy.
0: Okay, you've caught me in a bit of a contradiction. Um
1: well I don't I don't know, maybe, but re- let me maybe explain. that's why real estate is a tougher investment?
0: But in no market. no let, let me explain. When we <laughs> were talking about that, we were talking about sort of the uh, an appropriate level of return. And what we didn't really say explicitly, but I'll say it now, is that if you're buying real estate and you're getting something like a five or a 6% return, which means a five or a six cap rate, mm-hmm. you're buying that at about retail. That's about what it's worth, all right? Okay. So, and you remember we said if, if you're buying a thing with like an 8% return, you're getting a discount to what it's probably worth, all things being equal, if you can buy that same building with eight, remember $8,000 coming off of it instead of 6,000, the building's actually worth 130, not 100,000. And you've now bought it at a margin of safety, okay? So it wasn't that I was saying that an 8% return is a great overall return in your portfolio. What I was using it for was to determine, to, to tell you what a cash flow return would look like that would be considered retail by the marketplace. Now, what we want to do in order to get a very high rate of return is to get that $8,000 of cash flow. But I don't want to pay $100,000 for it. I want to pay $50,000 for it. Mm
1: -hmm. And if I
0: can pay $50,000 for it, then first off, my $8,000 is providing, a remember this, like a 16% cash flow, which is huge. But even better, I could flip that building in a year or two when the a real estate economic environment is better, maybe people can get loans again, I can flip that building for double what I paid for it in, let's say, three years. In which case, my rate of return on my cash would be 26% plus the 16% cash flow I got. Then I would think, yeah, I've got a great rate of return. So cash flow coming off of an investment, um, you know, we we assigned it a quality of bad, good, um, but... It, you know and so 8% cash flow coming off an investment we'd say is pretty good in a real estate investment but that isn't what we consider to be really good in our overall compound annual growth rate of our of our portfolio we would just consider that to be okay that would be average for a typical you know stock market portfolio
1: understood okay so what i'm hearing is that 6% is okay two percent i think is the t-bell rate which is our sort of baseline yep
0: that's our baseline
1: six percent is okay seven percent is pretty good eight percent is like pretty good (laughs) and and what you want is 15 (laughs) percent, which i cannot say without laughing so let's Um, take an example am i am i right on these numbers yeah you're right
0: okay so let's take an example so um Here's an example of Buffett buying a farm that he that he talked about. He said it's about 50 miles north of of uh, Omaha. Now he didn't buy this farm from a farmer. He bought this farm from uh, from the FDIC, which is a federal government agency that now owns this farm, 50 miles north of Omaha. And what had happened was that farm prices had skyrocketed as as The product prices commodity prices skyrocketed in the 70s where we had massive inflation going on okay so inflation typically means that the price of things like corn you know gasoline whatever the price of real things is going up like a rocket all right so that's what was happening in the 70s well if the price of the things coming off of your company which happens to be a farm are going up like crazy. Probably your farm is going up like crazy. Your company's rising in value. Um, so that's indeed what happened. Farm prices went up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And, up. and then the <laughs> bubble popped, <laughs> as as these bar market bubbles do. They pop. And when it popped, well, as before it popped, what inevitably happens is everybody decides to become a farmer, and they're buying mm-hmm. farms. They're they're planting to the hedgerows. It. And they're paying way too much. And of course, they're going to do it with borrowed money. Mm-hmm. And where do they get the money? Well, they get it from the government, which is trying to provide some quality of fairness to the markets by providing an opportunity for farmers to get loans that the banks think are too too risky. So the federal government comes in and guarantees a loan. Okay. All right. In order to, if this sounds like student loans, it is. And the same (laughs) thing happens with student loans that happen with farms is that this guaranteed money creates an environment of lending frenzy um, and the price of the thing you're buying goes up. Well, the price of the thing college kids are buying has gone up stupidly high because the money's guaranteed to be there. The same thing happened with farms. It created a bubble. Um, And I hope college professors are listening to this because y'all are in a (laughs) bubble. And it's going to pop. I don't,
1: I don't know if professors are the ones benefiting from this particular educational rise.
0: Well, certainly the the children at University of Colorado have benefited by having a theme park put into their university <laughs> last year, which is just off the chart. So in any case, that's a whole another subject. Let's just deal with the FDIC guaranteeing this loan to some farmer who extended himself too far corn prices come down like a brick, suddenly the farm can't even pay the cost of farming, much less the loan, okay. and he gets foreclosed on, along with oh, 20,000 other farms. So now all of a sudden, nobody wants to buy farms, corn prices are in the toilet, and the banks and the FDIC now have all these farms that they own that they don't want to own. So they start selling them, and when now everybody's selling a farm, The farm prices go down like a brick. Okay,
1: So this is how Warren Buffett bought a
0: cheap farm. He bought it cheap. Super cheap. Considerably less than the original loan that the original bank had made on the property. Mm. Considerably cheap. So he did a little calculation and he figured out that just based on normalized production on a regular farm out there and based on normalized prices over the long run for corn and soybeans, This farm is going to give him a return of 10%, not eight. Okay? So, in other words, he's buying this at a 10 cap rate.
1: That sounds good.
0: (laughs) It sounds good if you consider that it was a 10 cap rate based on just whatever farming practices the FDIC was using.
1: Oh, you mean it wasn't compared to the actual farmers who cared about what they were doing?
0: He could do better with a real farmer. Okay. <laughs> All right. So here he gets this thing and has a pretty I don't good idea. It backs
1: me up to imagine Warren Buffett like hoeing a field.
0: I don't think he'd be hoeing, uh, and I think he got into it because one of his son was really interested in farming. So it's like, okay, here's an opportunity.
1: At least you got somebody.
0: Yeah. All right. So there's an example of stepping into this operation just like it with a business and buying it relatively cheaply given the current production and expecting that in the long run, corn and soybean prices would go up. And I think actually at that time, corn and soybean prices were like at $2. Corn prices were $2 a bushel. And they've gone up as high as $8 a bushel since then. So you can imagine the profitability of that farm relative to what he paid for it now. All right. Now, let's go over to real estate. Same thing happened to Buffett in, um, in New York City, where in the 1980s, um, a bunch of savings and loans lent a bunch of money to real estate and, um, and they overdid it. They lent too much money on subprime real estate and they started to go under and a, a government agency called the Resolution Trust Corporation was was structured to take over those savings and loans and liquidate their holdings in a, in a kind of an orderly way so that there wasn't a complete collapse. <clears throat> does this sound familiar, by the way, at all? I mean, sure. it, does it sound like we go through these cycles on a regular basis? I mean,
1: obviously, yeah, of course. Which
0: is the whole point of Rule 1 investing is that, of course, you can get these deals. Of course, you can buy $10 bills for $5.00 because we cycle between vast greed and overexuberance to deep fear and, 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 and really cheap prices. So mm. we just want to wait with cash until we get one of these opportunities. And here's Buffett with cash, the real estate bubble pops in commercial real estate and the Resolution Trust Corporation has to get rid of these failed savings and loans. And in this particular case, they couldn't unload this property. And guess where it was? It was right next to NYU.
1: Really? Yeah,
0: where you went to law school, right? So right next to NYU. Is that a pretty good piece of real estate area for New York?
1: What year was this?
0: Um, 1980s, late 1980s.
1: Oh, I think it was pretty bad back then.
0: Oh, yeah. But what is it now?
1: Well, now it's ridiculous. It's amazing.
0: Right on. So here's this property in an area where at that time... Uh, Commercial property was going for about $70 a square foot for rent. Okay. And here's the catch with this property. Um, About 20% of the entire building was rented with one tenant who was paying $5 a square foot and had a nine-year lease.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. So, and then a big chunk of the rest of the building was empty. So... Nobody wanted this building because it had a huge piece of it that simply wasn't going to make you any money. You couldn't make any money at all. It cost you more than $5 a square foot just to pay taxes in New York.
1: Yeah, I bet.
0: Yeah. So what Buffett did is look at this thing and say, well, in the long run, if we hold this building for a long period of time, we're not just going to buy it and flip it. In the long run, what will happen is rents per square foot will go up in general. So they won't stay at 70. They're going to go to 80, 90, whatever. I don't know what they are in Union Square right now, but I bet they're pretty high. And he said, you know, if we can get this thing to cash flow, if we can get it at a price that will give us cash flow, we could buy it today. And in nine years, we will re-rent it and this value of this building will explode. Right? Totally makes sense.
1: I mean, (laughs) he didn't know that Giuliani was going to show up and clean up New York. And he didn't know that the that area around Washington Square Park was going to become sort of the gentrified area that it is now. I I don't know. I don't know if I buy that in 1980, anybody could have just shown up in the drug-ridden Washington Square Park area and decided that it one day was going to be this incredible um, yuppified part of New York that, you know, many people deplore.
0: Well, let, let me again take Buffett's point of view. He said the first thing was, he liked the location because it's next to NYU, and NYU is gonna always have a pile of students who need a place, and if those students are there, then there's a place for commercial properties to do the things students need to do. So his first point was that the location, regardless of the condition of the, the city at that particular time, and by the way, at that particular time, New York was really going through a lot of problems, um, that that was a good location, that it would, it would do well. And so I
1: mean, fair point fair point but that's where price is so important.
0: That's where price is important.
1: Because students are not going to make an area become expensive on their own. Students can't afford anything. But he doesn't so,
0: but here's the point he doesn't need it to become expensive.
1: Right. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. So he needs it to match or he needs it to provide a return based on what he pays, right? He
0: needs he needs to provide a return based on what he paid. Um, Actually, I think he made that purchase in 1993 for whatever that's worth. And, you know, the U.S. was going through a little recession right there and the whole thing. So here's what he needed. He needed to release the building, fill up the empty space and release that 20% at 70 bucks a foot instead of $5 a foot. Yeah. And so that would be the numbers that he's putting into his business plan, not some numbers that maybe this will be 150 a foot someday, but just that it'll be $70 a foot. And when, We release it, that's what we're going to get. Here's what our expenses are. Now, because we know our expenses are X, and we know we're getting 70 a foot for the whole building, we can then figure out what to pay for this building so that it will give us a nice return, Okay? okay? And that's all they do. That's all we do with a regular company, that's all we do with real estate, and that's all we do with farms, is we just try to look at, if this is just standardized at a certain revenue, and I know what my expenses are, then I can figure out what to pay for this thing that will give me a fair price with a margin of safety for, as Charlie says, the vicissitudes of life. And if I can get it for that price because the the Resolution Trust Corporation is just dying to get rid of these things, right? It has no vested stake. It just wants to get them off the books at the best price it can, but this has been sitting there for, Uh, years, and the property is deteriorating, the neighborhood's deteriorating, let's get somebody in here who will take this and make it better. They're going to dump it for whatever price, and you want to be there when that happens. That's
1: yeah, all you, we're doing. Yeah, well, you want to be there, sure. I mean, like, right, yes, you want to be there when that happens. It's pretty obvious. But the important thing is, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, you should buy a building cheaply. Oh, but the God. point is, what is cheaply? And how do you know it's cheap? That's the thing that that is difficult. That's uh, the thing where you're standing in Washington Square Park going, well. I don't know what's going to happen in the next twenty years. Like this could become even worse than it is now. And actually, I don't know what it was like in '93. Maybe it was wasn't even, that
0: bad. The upswing. So um, let me let me tell you how to figure out what's cheap. We're, we're working on that now, right? You came out earlier yeah. on and said, "What? What about five percent? Is that cheap?" And we said, "Well, six percent is you know okay. Eight percent cash flow is pretty good." On the farm, well, Buffett originally got ten percent. On this building with the rent as it was, okay, with some of the spaces unrented, with 20% of it at $5 a foot in a $70 market, the revenue stream minus the expenses of the building at some price produced a 10% return. So if Buffett could get it at that price that produced a 10% return, with those, with, with that, those facts about the building, then he would know that nine years later, when he rents out that 20% at $70 a foot, the value of this building is going to explode. And all he has to do is do the math to see that getting 10% a year or, and raising rents over time, and then ultimately nine years later, just the rents go skyrocketing on that 20% of the space, ultimately gives you a phenomenal rate of return. And that's all you really have to do. Okay. Okay. It's not science. I'm a, rocket I'm a science. little
1: puzzled because I don't see how you can know that New York City real estate is going to You don't it do doesn't
0: it. have to go up. It doesn't have to get better. All but it, it has to do is to not do, get
1: worse, right?
0: but it's it's right next to NYU. How worse could it be? <laughs> That's all you have to look at. Right? How so you're much saying worse in this, this situation
1: be? there's some inherent quality of value yes. that causes it? to have sort of a baseline, reasonable, I want to say value again, but that feels like the wrong word. Baseline, a baseline reasonable price that you would pay?
0: Because think about it, in real estate, the, the key things are location, 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 right? So what Buffett's looking at here, um, and, and in reference to NYU, being next to NYU, is that children go to NYU, young adults go to NYU. They have parents. And if this part of New York City becomes, in, you know, overly dangerous and really goes downhill, those parents are not going to let those children go to NYU.
1: And Ain't going to happen. The value of that building is going to crater. Well, it, NYU uh, loses students, loses funding. Right.
0: So basically what Buffett is thinking is that New York City isn't going to let one of the finest universities in the world go down the tubes because they're not willing to police the neighborhood. Yeah. Ain't going to happen.
1: Yeah. yeah. And so that's, yeah, and that makes sense. And, uh, and that's what I was asking. So so there is, even in real estate, there is this kind of like inherent value um, to that, the real estate based, based on its location. There
0: is. And, and in real estate, we look for location, which is what in businesses we call an intrinsic characteristic that gives it durability, right? The location of that building next to NYU is something intrinsic to the building. You can't separate it from that thing, It's locked in and it's locked in next to NYU, which is ultimately long term going to mean the neighborhood gentrifies. It has to in the long term. New York City is not going to let it go down the tubes. So the same thing we look for in businesses, which we call a moat, some intrinsic characteristic. You know, a railroad company has railroad track and you can't replace it. You can't get right of ways. So there, you know companies have secrets that you can't get your hands on and they are able to keep going forever because of the secrets. So there's some intrinsic characteristic to a real estate deal, some intrinsic characteristic to a farm deal that makes it a great long-term investment. In the farming operation, it's simple, right? This is the cheapest way to grow crops in the world, and the breadbasket of the world right here, and we can feed the world from right here, and world population is going to grow from $7 billion to $9 billion. These things are going to get more valuable. So... Uh,
1: okay, so you've yeah. convinced me to buy real estate on Washington Square Park in 1993. Very good. My question for next time is, why shouldn't I just do that instead of buying these stocks?
0: Very good, you should do that, and you should buy these stocks, and you should buy a farm, and you should buy a private company. You should buy the stuff that Mr. Market is in fear about, be looking in those markets for, for the super deals, because that's where they are, and then just be sure that you're staying within your circle of competence or staying well within your canyon. So the reason that you might not be buying things in all of these markets all the time is because you know you haven't been doing this for 30 years, and the, the area where you could feel really comfortable about getting up to speed might be relatively limited. So You actually, because you lived right next to Washington Square, you lived right next to Union Square, um, you might feel pretty confident about coming in there and buying a building. Only trouble is right now, you can't because they're (laughs) not on sale. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to have to look somewhere else. And the beauty of the stock market, to bring it back to stocks, is that real estate cycles are pretty long and slow, whereas stock market has cycles going on in one of its industries virtually all the time. Right now, oil and gas companies are getting crushed. Coal companies are getting crushed. Commodity companies like BHP Billiton, one of the the biggest, best mining companies in the world, crushed. Vale, crushed. Rio Tinto, crushed. Joy Global, crushed. So one after another, these companies, which are fabulous companies, are getting destroyed by a major change in the market. And what you have to do is look in this and say, hey, is this my canyon? Is this my circle of competence? Do I wanna, am I, as Charlie said, am I capable of coming up to speed and understanding this business or not? And if I'm not, eh, move to someplace else. There's always another place. That's the beauty of stock investing. And on that note, what should we talk about next time?
1: <laughs> I'm like sitting here, like nodding my way through this. Okay, okay, okay. So, real estate. Real estate's okay to invest in. This is not where I thought we were going with this. Real estate's okay to invest in. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. Okay. I
0: own some.
1: It's just that stock markets, stock markets, the stock market is uh, so much larger and more diversified and involves so many more places and kinds of industries that you can find more stuff on sale. Correct?
0: Yeah. In fact, it gets so wild that in the stock market, you can buy farms. You can buy land, you can buy hospitals, you can, you can buy buildings in New York City, you, you know, you can buy companies that make virtually everything. And, um, and it makes it, when you start to learn that part of the game and that part of the asset group, you start to find out you can do a, uh, pretty much any kind of investing you want right there without ever having to travel around in New York and dig your way through a building. So, you know. Oh,
1: that's interesting. That's interesting to me. We've had a lot of discussions about how it's hard to wrap your mind around these, like, like uh, the, all those commodities companies you just mentioned. I have no idea what you just said because <laughs> I've never heard of them and I don't care about them. But I can, you know, I, I can, I'm not saying that I can't learn to care about them, but I don't care about them right now. Whereas you say something about, you know, being able to buy real estate and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. And, and I, I can um, I can relate to it pretty quickly
0: well how about next time we talk about a company that does real estate and yeah. um, and is is quite an interesting investment we can show you kind of that investment parameters around what's known as a real estate investment trust which is a stock in the stock market of a company that tends to specialize in certain kinds of real estate
1: okay. let's do that next time
0: okay until then
1: it's time <laughs> to go play bye everybody see ya.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you got to do to go is enter the special podcast code, stockpile that's s-t-o-c-k-p-i-l-e stockpile into the application form and you guys can attend for free so everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's danielle's opinion and it is not to be taken as investment advice because i am not your investment advisor nor have i considered your personal situation as your fiduciary this podcast is for your entertainment and education only And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.